Today is March 17th, 2020, and we recorded this podcast two days ago. In that time, school closures in the U.S. have increased, with The Atlantic reporting that 56,000 schools serving nearly 30 million children are now closed. Most schools are quickly moving instruction online. I'm Monica Bolger, an education PhD who studies child rights, learning with technology, and digital literacy. I'm joined today by two colleagues who have engaged in decades of study of education technologies, looking at the multiple dimensions of learning, instruction, policy, and industry. Both are candid about the realities of adopting ed tech in the classroom and are often called upon to imagine futures of education. Dr. Cristobal Cobo led Fundacion Ciabal, the research initiative examining Uruguay's national rollout of laptops for children and their families. Cristobal and I shared an office at the Oxford Internet Institute early in our careers, and he is a catalyst for thinking deeply about education technologies. In his most recent book, I Accept the Terms and Conditions, he interviews global experts on the realities of everyday tech use. We are also joined by Professor Neil Selwyn of Monash University in Australia, who is also a renowned global expert in education technologies, with many foundational books on the subject, most recently, Should Robots Replace Teachers? An Examination of the Promise and Practical Considerations of AI in Education. And today I'm joined by Dr. Cristobal Cobo and Professor Neil Selwyn, and we are discussing uh, the school closures around the globe in response to the coronavirus and with this abrupt switch to online. What should experts be doing to support educators and schools in this transition? So first I think we should start with just saying that um, in the U.S., uh, a lot of school closures are going to be starting on Monday, and um, they're, they're shifting abruptly to online without really any warning or training for the for many of the teachers. And um, in an earlier podcast, I discussed with Vicki Katz uh, that there's not a lot of consideration, too, for how the families uh, will be adjusting to this and accommodating this change. Um, Neil, what's the situation in Australia? Are there um, school closures happening there yet? Um, so I'm speaking to you in the future. It's Monday morning here. <laughs> and as of this moment, there are no statewide or district-wide school closures, but individual schools are closing. Uh, different community schools are closing and we're expecting kind of statewide closures very, very soon and universities as well. And what are you seeing in Washington, D.C., Cristobal? Yeah, similar picture. So uh, it's up on, the, on, up on the schools and I think in the coming days we will see more and more schools uh, getting close. Yes, and here in California, uh, the, we, I, I was seeing um, the first list I saw was 38 schools uh, on, on Thursday, and then it just keeps growing and growing, and it was primarily charter and private schools, and now it's moving into public schools, and certainly the universities are, are starting to hold courses online, particularly Stanford. So just to get this conversation started, Neil, do you mind addressing what you think experts can or should be doing uh, in response to this massive shift to online learning? Yeah, I mean, there's a few groups that I think we could be talking about. Um, certainly there's the edtech community, um, but also the edtech industry. Uh, and as an edtech academic and edtech researcher, um, there's also things I think that we should be thinking about as well. So there's at least three different um, groups that we can talk about. And then of course, we've got practitioners. Um, so I'm, I'm, I'm happy to talk about the community, the industry, the academics, all the practitioners. 
I think that that would be really helpful. Um, and I think you raised a, an important point that uh, is worth highlighting, that uh, a focus of this podcast is that uh, there's a lot of conversations happening right now on Twitter, on Facebook, in the news about what people should be doing. Um, I'm seeing a lot of advertisements from um, educational technology companies. And what what um, we're trying to accomplish here in this discussion is a discussion among experts. We all have decades of experience now studying education technology, um, studying how educators should be supported, uh, decisions schools should be making, um, positive positive movement and missteps made by the tech companies, by schools um, in this in this area, and so. Um, Yes. Yeah, so an aim here is for us all to be able to provide tips, strategies, uh, discussions of pitfalls and that sort of thing. Um, Neil, wh whichever one you want to start with, actually, do, should we should we go high level, you know, like decision maker level to practitioner level? Or should we start with the practitioners? I'll tell you, I would like to start with the industry in a way and the ed tech community, because this has always been a, an area of education that's been kind of driven by enthusiasts and, and driven by kind of tech people and has increasingly become more commercialized and in some way I'm a bit concerned about the ed tech community and the ed tech industry um, the response to this I mean you hear a lot of people in their tech talking with enthusiasm that this is can be a great experiment in e-learning you know this is the great tipping point or a big disruption and people are kind of expecting online learning to go mainstream after this and you know some in, <laughs> some people are seeing it as a bit of a business opportunity um, kind of online learning gold rush. And I think we want to step back a bit and think about the civil responsibility of the ed tech community, ed tech companies, um, internet service providers. And in some ways, we shouldn't be approaching this as an experiment. This is an emergency. Very much so. Um, it is an emergency and not an experiment. Uh, Cristobal, did you have anything to add to that? Yeah, totally agree. I think the fact that in, in, in normal times, there have been this growing gap between the expectation of how technology is going to change uh, the, the learning experience and how in reality that shows to be much more difficult and challenging. And in many cases, it doesn't provide the outcomes expected. Uh, if that is happening in, in, in ideal context, now in the moment of crisis, I think we we have to be very careful in, in the kind of recommendations we provide in order to ensure that this thing will really add value and not treat students as guinea pig, as, as Neil was suggesting. I think this point about hype and, and uh, ideal scenarios is really important. Uh, in my year-long case study of InBloom, uh, one thing I found consistently in our interviews was this uh, notion of kind of the ideal learning environment, this um, expectation that everything would run smoothly because because of this um, vision of how it should run smoothly and almost a, a paired with like a nostalgic understanding of school rather than the realities of how messy the contexts are. And I don't think that that, that lesson was learned. I, I see it over and over again in marketing materials, uh, in, in conferences, particularly ISTE. There's always this um, major, you know, the, that that tech showroom, the the exhibition halls, where, where everything's promising and hype and um, positive without a consideration for the realities that uh, educators face, that schools face, that uh, children face, and that families face. Absolutely. And I think if I was part of the edtech industry, I wouldn't be pushing this as a great experiment because it's, it's not an experiment at all. It's certainly not controlled. We're rushing into this incredibly quickly. So this isn't going to give you a very good idea of how online learning or digital education might work because these, these are not ideal times. And I guess the trouble, the thing that worries me a bit is that 
EdTech is so caught up in practices that are not focused on the needs and the well-being of students and educators that most of the things we can turn to in a rush are going to be things that are going to be compromised and problematic. So, I mean, you know, the um, Zoom have been very generous, uh, but also very business savvy in pushing their products open for K-12 schools, for example. But as a lot of folks are now pointing out, there are, there are a bunch of kind of data sharing and privacy issues with these technologies. Um, but teachers and students are being pushed onto these platforms. There's no time to kind of sit back and take our time and work out what we might want to do, or what we might not want to do. There's no time to kind of read or challenge the terms of service for these products. There's no time to work out what more satisfactory alternatives would be. So I guess educators are having to rush into these online arrangements and that might not be good for them in the long run. and might not be good for how people think about digital education in the long run. This could put a lot of people off rather than turn a lot of people on. You know, just for comparison's sake, uh, Cristobal, do you mind speaking about the amount of time it took and the amount of, I, I mean, just all of the thinking and, and testing that went into uh, the implementation in Uruguay when they shifted to to um, every student having a laptop, the I mean it was just an enormous undertaking and and it took very extensive research and practice before it, it, it was a slow rollout. It wasn't an immediate one. Totally, and I think you one of the interesting things of the case that you mentioned is you you have kind of tiers of transformation. I mean, one tier could be one level could be the deployment of the infrastructure, which could be either connectivity, provide provide provision of um, devices or resources. Um, but in a way, if you have the resources, that is the the the, the one that is faster to address, because when you want to develop the not the infrastructure but the human infrastructure, the capacities of people, then uh, that's going to be a long-term intervention. It's going to be transformative in, in the long run. So uh, in the case of Uruguay, they evolved from uh, public policy that was focused on the provision of the devices into something that transformed in a second stage some of the basic ICT skills, if you want to call them. And then it evolved in a kind of third stage, which was putting less attention on the devices and much more in transforming the dynamics into the classroom. Um, and I think if we learn from examples like this, uh, what are the things we, that we can bring into the current crisis? What are the things that we can uh, consider quick fixes uh, that can be, uh, that need, I think they should be addressed in the short term because um, policymakers, they, they need to find a solution for those literally 300 plus million students who are out of the school system and somehow something should be discussed now in the, in the long and short term. But the truth is, if we want to really address more sustainable solutions, we want to design agendas that are going the long run and that, that thing won't be sorted out only by providing certain apps or certain tools. This is interesting because um, in this moment, there is a heavy reliance, of course, on, on the quick fixes. And um, and one one really positive shining light, as far as what I'm seeing um, here in California, is um, public media is opening up their uh, their their resources, their content. So uh, KQED in the Bay Area is now going to have daily lesson plans, drawing on you know the massive content they have on um, science and uh, history and that sort of thing, and uh, they've promised that it would align with uh, the the um, California teaching requirements. So, uh, so that's that's a real positive shift. And and KQED is is a brand that's that's um, 
trusted and respected. So, so that also has that benefit. Um, I'm trying to think what other, um, I, I think it's worth talking about what we recommend for what, what folks should look for in the quick fixes. And then also what we recommend for considering, um, more sustainability, because there is a very good chance that this is not going to be just a two week type of, um, experience. Can't think of a better word than that, but you know that this isn't going to just last two weeks. This could be a six-month type of thing, and we don't want to um, disrupt children's education uh, to the point where where they might miss out on future opportunities because of it. Uh, I agree. I think we really have to pace ourselves. I mean, most people can cope doing this for a couple of days or a couple of weeks as a stopgap arrangement, but I mean, I'm looking at months of alternate arrangements. Um, and there is a danger that fatigue will set in. And as you say, inequalities will happen just because of um, or just the way that our societies are set up. I, I mean, I've heard a few people online make quite a radical suggestion that perhaps we should just pause. I mean, I haven't heard many people yes. talk about in the global north, at least. Um, I've seen that too. Yeah, I mean, we could just stop. And if they're going to cancel the Olympics, they're going to account, uh, abandon the NBA. Maybe we could just stop the clock on education and take a breather. I mean, is formal education really the most important thing we need to be pushing on with us, particularly for elementary and middle school kids? Um, so, I mean, that, that's a kind of not a very helpful policy suggestion, but it's a slightly more radical thing. We could possibly think alternatively. Do we all have to carry on working as hard as we are? Uh, and at, the, at, the moment, the, at the moment, the responses are institutional and they're logistic. And the solutions mm -hmm. that have been touted are institutional and logistic. This is an institutional problem at the moment. And what's interesting about that is that uh, what, what I'm seeing in talking to parents is that the responsibility is really falling on the parents yeah. quite a bit, especially with the younger children, especially with kids, you know, 11 years and younger um, uh, parents are now having to work from home, but not all parents are working from home. And so the ones who aren't, um, I was talking to a vet, uh, a vet tech um, who was saying that, you know, animals are still being treated, right? Animals still get hit by cars, still have illnesses and that sort of thing. And so she needs to be at work, but her five-year-old need, you know, has nowhere to go now. And so she, she said, you know, I proposed bring your daughter to work day, you know, as an, you know, endlessly until this is over. And she said that, you know, they weren't keen on that at, at her work. And um, I'm, so anyways, I'm talking to nurses and, and doctors and, and different people who cannot be home with their children and yet have this responsibility now to somehow be uh, responsible for their education when they don't have the training to teach them and they don't have the time to be home either. Well, my my understanding of the problem is, um, I think we can divide it, or at least organize it from the policy perspective in four dimensions. Um, two are the ones which we see today in the internet being broadly discussed, which is uh, lots and lots of lists of resources and platforms that are online and free, freely available, and people are sharing that and discussing that as the quick solution. Um, the truth is we have open educational resources for the last 20 years and open source resources for the last uh, probably 30 or more years. Um, so for those countries who are already have the minimum infrastructure, meaning connectivity and electricity, you can achieve those quick solutions. Um, but if we want to design more future-proof kind of solutions, I think we have to address that only by providing this tool we might end up amplifying uh, inequal inequities that exist from those kids. It could be the, from the infrastructure point of view inequity or from cognitive capacities from those kids who might not be benefited only by a teacher providing an amount of resources to follow. Mm -hmm. and, and the two dimensions that I think could be more relevant in the middle 
short-term um, agenda would be one is ensuring that the, the learning experiences are rich and interesting and are not only focused on the provision of resources. It could be uh, good practices, uh, developing some kids among those who educate. Uh, and the second dimension is how can we ensure that this is not a, a low quality kind of learning experience? Uh, um, for many, many years, e-learning was considered a kind of cheap kind of learning experience. And, and probably that reality is changing, but we, uh, again, sorry to be um, biased on the policy approach, but I think this is something that is important. What can we do the administrations to ensure that this uh, uh, is happening, the kids are learning, that they open some tools for feedback, they provide some capacities, and they develop some incentives and another another sort of sets that that can be of help uh, beyond um, the quick fix, as we said. Well, I think in a way, perhaps having a pause or a moratorium for a few weeks or a month or two might allow people to gather their you know <laughs> their energies and come up with something that isn't low quality. I think there's a lot of stress and pressure on teachers, and one of my concerns is that teachers are going to be thrown in at the deep end. And are going to feel under huge pressure to make this not a low quality experience. But I think with all of the circumstances around it, it's inevitably going to be low quality to begin with. I think this is a very true point. And as you were speaking, I was also thinking that those teachers might have children at home as well. Absolutely. So if we were to go the moratorium route, is there is there a stopgap or a, a middle point there too where we can say, hey, these are fun things to do or these are educational things to do because they're still, you know, because then, I mean, we're really going to, going to have to rethink this then. Uh, will will summer vacation be cut short because we'll, we'll be needing to make up this time? Uh, I saw... I saw one parent on on Twitter saying, you know, that this is this means that their child will not be experiencing their senior year of high school, or or another one, you know, that that their senior year of college was being cut short. Um, I think it's more critical for like these places where like for senior year of high school, that's preparing them then to go into college, and it's not something that they might be able to make up. Whereas if it's fourth grade, they might be able to, you know, have some sort of um, allowances made to you know, to build them up in fifth grade kind of thing. I mean, I don't know. Uh, I, I don't know what to recommend here on that front. Clearly we <laughs> these don't These are the either. hard questions, <laughs> right? <laughs> yeah, these are the hard questions. So this is good to say though, right? That that experts in this topic, you know, were, were stumped. And so it's really, it's really unfair to expect really anyone to have answers at this point yeah and so it's good that we're talking and one of the one of when i was thinking through what i might say on this this podcast one of the things i really wanted to say was ed tech as an area really needs to embrace uncertainty this is an mm -hmm. area that loves to be bold and overconfident and over certain and even in normal times we, we the only thing we can really be certain of is nothing is uncertain and this has really brought this home big time and so i, I hope when this is all faded away and we're you know 2021 or 2022 i really hope that EdTech might resist talking about quick fixes and solutions and transformations and smart education and precision systems. And it's messy. Everything's messy. Life is messy. Education is messy. Technology is messy. We, we want to be more realistic. And I think at the moment, the fact that we haven't really got any real kind of obvious solutions really is bringing this home to bear. And so maybe having a bit of a rest, having a bit of a breather, taking a pause is, is, is sensible. But we, we need to admit it. 
I think we agree. If we think in, in kind of long-term solutions, I think we have to explore to what extent the ed tech is not something relevant uh, for a small geeky community and is a sort of language that educators may need to be more familiar with. Um, but that won't be implemented in eight weeks. That's going to take a while. I think we cannot speed up the processes of learning. We can speed up the process of content delivery, which is completely different. Mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. So my take is we have been seeing much more interesting experiences in terms of uh, self and social learning uh, through more informal learning uh, approaches in which people is driven by interest, curiosity on a specific needs and they build knowledge with others uh, than in traditional classrooms incorporating technology. I mean, it's obviously there are some cases in which you can see outliers and very interesting experiences, but the fact that there are many other things uh, happening in terms of learning beyond what is happening in, in the school in the classroom at the university i think is something that we can look closer and that requires a little bit of disobedience challenging and hacking the education that we use sorry the technology we use to, to repurpose them for other uses for instance i've seen i've seen in in israel that they hack the tinder to create a tinder for connecting with scientists and to talk about science is a way of repurposing technology that exists today to, to use it in innovative ways that to in order to fit their specific purposes. No, I agree. I think bottom-up community approaches um, is really the way forward with all of this. And there's always the concern that when we talk about the community, that only certain parts of the community benefit from those. But I would certainly like to explore that. I mean, just to be contrarian again, I, mean, I, I haven't much consideration in the global north about alternate approaches what might have we done 10 years ago or 20 years ago when digital education wasn't a thing i mean are we missing out on some offline analog options i mean there's a fine tradition of paper-based distance education for example we can encourage people just to slow down and read books fully and then re yes, read them again yes. <laughs> so i mean well, why are we rushing to the digital perhaps that well there are there are analog ways of doing this i was thinking of that actually that um uh in in speaking with with kids here in my neighborhood and uh, kids in our family, we were, I was thinking that reading really would have been, if, if this had happened when I was a kid, I would just, I would be in my room delighted reading. I know that not all kids love to read, but I would have had a stack and, you know, just like summer, like what, what do you do during the summer? And, and uh, so I agree that, that reading is a good option. I also, uh, to, to take up uh, what Cristobal was saying about um, informal learning. I think that there's quite a bit of opportunity here for science and geography and history um, in this present moment to talk about, um, you know, when 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 there started to be an awareness of germs, when when you know different different types of scientific um, innovation happened, and and also just historically how these things have been addressed. Okay, so so I think we've we've discussed this moment and we've discussed. Um, potential approaches, um, still there's going to be educators who are expected to transition into online instruction, regardless of uh, whether, you know, whether taking a pause might be at the policy level, something that, that we could encourage uh, until that happens, teachers are going to be expected to, to teach. So in our experiences, what are key things that educators should know as they move to online instruction. Uh, Cristobal, you mentioned that there's quite a few resources already available. And I know that in preparing for this podcast, we discussed that UNESCO has curated a list 
of possible resources. Yeah, I've seen in the last couple of days an incredible amount of communities in this field aggregating lists or curating lists of resources, contents, uh, softwares, platforms in order to offer this, this kind of uh, quick fix approach, which for me are helpful. But at the end of the day, they're not much more, not, not more than a shopping list. Meaning that, I mean, it's something that if you do a little bit of Googling, you will find those lists anywhere somewhere. So it's not that I'm saying that the effort of some of my colleagues are useless, but I think if we don't add some, some uh, extra mile on how to incorporate these things, probably they won't be particularly helpful. I mean, uh, what we have seen in, 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 in some of the studies is that education and technology will require building a new context. I mean, the 45 minutes in which you teach, uh, when you integrate technology, probably might not be the best context. You have to open more the use of the time. The, uh, the disciplinary boundaries that we have in traditional curriculums doesn't fit well with the integration of technology. Technology helps us to connect through different disciplines, uh, different ages, different contexts. So I think these kind of flexibilities, uh, again, connected with the informal learning is something that we can incorporate if we want to make a good use of technology. And in the um, in the Uruguay implementation, uh, the study that I was involved in with your team, we looked at um, how how students learned English with a remote teacher um, and a physical teacher, and we found that both were necessary for for successful learning. Right, some students were gravitating toward toward one over the other, and we and while we did find um, that that when a teacher is working remotely with students, uh, a way to encourage participation was to ask them questions and to respond in a timely manner. Uh, these were two important findings. Uh, we still didn't find that remote teachers could substitute having the, the teacher physically present. Totally. I mean, I, I mean one of the two, two nice takeaways of that experience is one, uh, it doesn't have to be a super cutting edge technology because the video conference mm -hmm. has been on the market for the last 40 years, right? So, right. and the second thing is uh, this idea of uh, ensuring that the learning, despite that you have, you may reduce the distance and the, and the content delivery, the value is in building social experience. I mean, putting kids to discuss and to, to share their questions is something that is critical. So um, I think we, we have today enough evidence of this kind of practice that can be of help. But I'm sure Neil has a lot to add on that. But. No, I would agree with you both. I think flexibility uh, and not cutting edge is, is definitely the way forward. I mean, there's a few things I think I would, if I was an educator, or I am an educator, actually, I should be thinking about this for myself. But um, <laughs> I mean, the first thing I guess is the technology will fall down. I mean, have a plan B. I'm not expecting the Australian internet to hold up very well. I'm not expecting Zoom and Skype and the rest to be fully functioning as soon as, you know, 300 million kids jump onto them. So I'm definitely keeping my options open. I'm not relying on the system. I'm fully expecting to be handing around USB sticks and, you know, going back to old school ways of doing things. I'm super mindful of digital inequalities, as I guess well, the three of us are, because we research it. And they're not always obvious. I mean, access and connectivity are, are obvious inequalities, but the social envelope that is around any engagement with online learning is always going to be messy and compromised for lots of people. And this idea of context, I think, that Christopher raised is really important. Household life, if we're talking about most of this taking place in the home, household life is always going to be hectic. We're going to have students that are caring for others. We're going to have students that 
sharing broadband and computers with others, holding down their own precarious jobs. They're going to be facing 99 problems and you know, online learning is just going to be one of them. And on top of that, as a teacher, as an educator, my own household life is going to be hectic. I have kids and all sorts of other stuff to be dealing with. So I mean, one of the things I definitely try and, I don't know, I recommend any educator to think about is that this is a rushed form of online learning. It's going to be compromised and second best and good enough is fine. You don't have to make it perfect. And I think if we have that loose, organic approach, then it becomes less pressurized. And then as Christabel says, it can become more social and more informal, more convivial. It can actually be a fun thing to do. Um, and the, other, the final thing I'm trying to desperately tell myself is not to just overload myself and overload my students. Teaching online and learning online is really hard work. It's harder work than I think teaching face-to-face. And it can easily lead to overwork as well. We know about teachers working you know, 24 hours a day, seven days a week, mm. working in the evenings. We've got to look after ourselves uh, and don't do any more than we normally would. Totally. If, and if I can add something, I mean, uh, based on experiences and research that we have seen in the last, for the last eight years or so, the e-learning or the use of internet for learning at a large scale hasn't been all successful. The level of dropouts are super high. And I read that as not everyone enjoy that kind of learning environment, meaning that we have to really disaggregate large chunks of content into much more modular things that you can process and you can connect with other things. Uh, I think the traditional way of um, thinking the curriculum or the, or the lesson plans has been uh, this... Um, prescriptive design of a number of resources that the educator need to share and the educators in the most traditional way are considered this knowledge source of unique source of knowledge but today access to high quality resources in many contexts is a commodity i mean you don't have to do a lot of effort and use search engine in a super sophisticated way to find high quality resources so the value will be not in the access of those resources but how do you challenge that information how do you select them? How do you identify other sources that might contradict the first sources that you found? Um, this kind of critical thinking, which is something way more important today in, a, in, a, in an environment in which we, we have abundance of resources, I think can be even more important than offering the proper Khan Academy resource for the lesson of this class. Yeah, and I think the issue of intimacy as well, maintaining and sustaining an intimacy between students and between teachers and students is really, really important for online learning to work. As you say, the content and the, the kind of logistics of it are one thing, but it's that social thing that we're really going to have to work out. How do we keep the social connection going? I mean, that reminds me of something that Monica and I did many years ago when we uh, were studying uh, in the context of MOOCs. We were not studying the MOOCs as, as such, but we were studying all the parallel channels of communication and coordination that people, students in this case, were building to meet each other in a cafeteria, in a library, in a, in a bookstore, uh, to, to talk, to discuss the things that we're learning. I mean, the, this need of putting the flesh close and, and, and share experiences is something, that we, is something that we have to be fully aware of. We're going to invest all this energy in the online learning because that missing part can be critical. I think this is really important that uh, that the learning experience is is social, uh, that as human beings we need to have those connections, and so maintaining these relationships, um, all of this is 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 sort of uh, 
it's not tech dependent, right? But now that we have the tech and that we're, we're, we're forced into isolation, how can we maintain these social relationships and how can learning still be a space where we uh, affirm each other and connect with each other um, is, is, a, is really important. Thank you so much for both bringing it up. Um, is there, so we're, we're about to finish here and I'm just wondering what are some final points we'd like to, to express? We've, we've spoken about, um, policies. We've spoken about, uh, the approaches for ed tech companies. We've spoken about educators, families. Um, so what are some final thoughts you both might have? Um, I guess just from a kind of educational research academic ed tech community point of view i mean this is not the time for ed tech triumphalism for people saying oh, i've been teaching online for years wherever you've all been here's 10 million resources but but it's also not the time for ed tech critics like me to be saying ah i told you so this is all going to fall over <laughs> this is a really big societal crisis and there's a lot of people being disadvantaged and it doesn't make me happy to see this mess unfold and i guess it, coming back to what i said before i hope when this fades away we can all remember and learn lessons from this. I mean, most education systems have been massively unprepared for this, this time around, but it's gonna happen again. This isn't gonna be the last time, this isn't gonna be the last pandemic. We, we will face a future, a future where schools are kind of having to prepare for closing down in Australia for bushfires and climate related disasters. If, if something, I don't think this is gonna be a particularly happy episode. I mean, we can get through it, and, but we have to learn lessons and hopefully if we can work out ways of making our education systems a bit more flexible, a bit more hybrid, and bringing in things like sociability and intimacy and you know, conviviality and all the things we've just talked about into the conversation around digital education and, and switching policymakers and university vice chancellors and school district leaders away from this idea of ed tech just as a kind of logistical problem or a kind of you know, institutional thing. And hopefully rediscovering what education and digital digital education can be because i'm very i think digital education can be brilliant um but we need time and we need to think very carefully and kind of socially as well as technically about it you know this is making me think actually of uh, photos i've seen when unicef goes into a disaster area and uh and and sets up classrooms and sets up uh, teaching spaces and i remember one of the first pictures i saw it there were just all these bright things there were balls there were there were toys there were there were things and and i was thinking that um preparation in that sense was having having a, a short-term plan for how to engage the kids um and then building on that later but 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 providing this space for then um than building something later. And I think that right now we've got a lot of pressure, as we've all been saying, on on teachers to to be somehow shifting into this uh, space that 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 we're not critically considering um, can fail, right? That, that in, in many ways it could fail in access, it can fail uh, in content. Um, and we're also not considering the contexts in which these kids and the educators are accessing the information. So I think that that is also a very important point we've raised. And so uh, returning to this idea of having sort of a stopgap to begin with, to allow people time to sort of get get on board is, is very um, critical at this moment. So um, Yes, thank you for raising those issues. And Cristobal, tossing it over to you. Yeah, my two last ideas. One is, I think uh, on the bright side, uh, at least for the OECD countries and similar, there are good news today. I mean, the fact that we have a basic infrastructure and basic skills means that the leapfrog doesn't have to be massive for people to use 
what we already have in order to benefit some of those who might be today out of the school system. Uh, but the truth is we have a large, I mean, half of the world today is still in the digital darkness. So they are out of these mm -hmm. possibilities. So that's a call for countries to, be, to build a thing in the basic enabling infrastructure that is required and some of the enabled basic skills for, for the community. The good news is we have low cost resources that can work also in offline context. The, the so-called offline ability of those resources can be helpful. But there's plenty of things to do in that area for those who are in a more uh, constrained context. And the second idea is bringing back the old Chomsky who repeats again and again this idea of uh, it's not what you cover, sorry, it's not what you this. It's not what you cover, but what you discover. I think that it applies super well here. So it, uh, the me my message for the educator will be, don't get stressed with uh, all this content that you have to cover in the curriculum, but design strategies in which you allow the learners to discover things that might go far beyond the curriculum. I think just with that would be a particular benefit for this challenging time. Thank you so much for joining us. No, and thanks Thank for organising this, Monica. It's been this is the kind of bottom-up, you know, kind of informal, on-the-fly thing that I think educators are going to be doing as well. So I'm really pleased that you've uh, you've sorted it out. Thank you, Thank you for uh, the opportunity. We really enjoy. I mean, I, I really like working with you guys. So it's been a pleasure, and hopefully, more of this conversation will, will take place later. Absolutely. We hope this discussion is helpful for everyone working to determine how to best manage school closures. Key points of our discussion are first that this is an emergency, not an experiment. The rapid shift to online learning is at the moment a necessity. These are not ideal conditions for assessing the efficacy of learning online. This is not the moment to move fast and break things, which could negatively impact decades-long gains in learning. We need to remember there are no quick fixes. Learning is messy and occurring in a multitude of contexts. It's important to keep in mind the many families for whom this current moment is a hardship. We must also keep in mind the differential access and capacities children are experiencing in learning from home. Most learning experiences will be compromised in some way. This is also not a time for, as Neil said, edtech triumphalism, but rather a moment for tech companies and foundations to acknowledge uncertainty and be circumspect in their promises of what edtech can achieve. We recommend for policymakers and state and district decision makers that they consider all tools, traditional, analog, and digital, that can be brought to the current crisis. We should be considering short-term and long-term. As Cristobal recommended, we must work our way through what we can consider quick fixes and what will address long-term, rich learning experiences. Globally, countries, towns, and cities will have differing capacities and must consider possibilities within these potential limitations. We recommend pausing schooling short-term to allow educators a chance to consider resources and opportunities and ramp up for instruction. Everyone is stressed right now, and with parents working from home in some cases, in others, parents may still be working, but children are expected to be home. There is wide variability in children's learning situations. This crisis may last longer term, and as Neil said, it's on us as researchers, educators, experts in learning and tech to figure out positive, meaningful approaches. On the positive side, this is an opportunity for informal learning. We have incredible tools right now, and this is an opportunity to help each other, both locally and globally, better address the potentials for educational technologies. 